0: 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we will begin reading at verse 19. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 19. This is the word of the Lord. Please give it your full attention. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Saints, let's pray together. Gracious Father, we come to you now in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, by the help and strength of your Spirit. Lord, we ask that you would give to us grace this morning as we consider what it means, Lord, for the Spirit to work among us. Lord, lead us, guide us, give us discernment and wisdom. I decrease that you may increase. Be glorified in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Brother Anthony, I'm getting kind of a ring from maybe volume or something. Please be seated. Well, once again, brothers and sisters, I greet you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Welcome you on this Lord's Day Sabbath as we uh, continue our short series, which is turning into a long series, isn't it? Uh, encouragements while we wait. This will be part 13 this morning with maybe two more, and then we'll be moving on to something else. Last week... We looked at the marks of biblical prophecy, what it is. Uh, we considered those things that characterize true prophecy so that when one claims to be a prophet, they can be put to the test. Their prophecy can be examined and verified. You know, we learned that true prophecy agrees with and is subordinate to that which God has already said or revealed in his word. God will, therefore, God will not suddenly begin to say something different than what he has always said. Uh, Prophecy does not take us into new or different directions, but prophecy continues to develop what God has already set forth in his word. With that, uh, I know last week I said that we would... We'd be exegeting this particular text this morning. But I thought before we we did that, I thought it would be helpful for us to make something clear. And it is this. We do not believe that prophecy, and listen to the language here, extraordinary spiritual gifts. Extraordinary spiritual gifts are continuing in the body of Christ. I'll say that again. We do not believe that prophecy, in the sense that it is extraordinary spiritual gift, continues in the church today. I'm going to use a big word, and I'm going to define it. We believe in the cessation of those extraordinary spiritual gifts. Cessation meaning those extraordinary spiritual gifts have ceased. Cessation ceased. Uh, we in this church are cessationists. Now, that should not surprise many of you to hear that this is the position of this church. You are well aware, uh, I'm sure, that it is found in the first chapter and first paragraph of our confession, and actually all throughout our confession. Uh, LBCF, London Baptist Confession. Paragraph or chapter one, paragraph one says, those former ways of God's revealing his will unto his people being now cease. Those former ways of God revealing himself to his people have ceased. We confess that the extraordinary, and I continue to use that, extraordinary spiritual gifts have ceased. But I do think it is important before we move forward. To have a foundational understanding of why they have ceased, how they have ceased. By confessing that we believe that the Bible teaches that the extraordinary spiritual gifts have ceased, we are in no way saying that the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, is no longer at work. Let's make that clear. Uh, That's probably some of the accusation that uh, others outside of the Reformed Church say about the Reformed Church. They don't have the Spirit. Well, quite the contrary. We believe in the active working of the Holy Spirit. Uh, We are also not quenching the Holy Spirit or somehow that the Holy Spirit are working against the Holy Spirit in the local church. Again, quite to the contrary. Uh, We believe the extraordinary spiritual gifts, listen to these three, were foundational, transitional, and temporary. The extraordinary spiritual gifts were foundational, transitional, and temporary. So dear saints, today with God's help, I'd like you to give me patience as well because we've got a lot to cover. I'd like to give an explanation for the purpose, for of the extraordinary spiritual gifts. We'll talk about the purpose of them, how they were transitional, foundational, transitional, and temporary, and then how the Spirit works in the church today. Let us begin. First point, the Function of the extraordinary spiritual gifts, the function of it, the function of it. Uh, When thinking about the extraordinary spiritual gifts, I think it's important to specify what we mean by them. So when we say extraordinary spiritual gifts, what is that? Those include prophecy. That is building upon what God has already said. They include speaking of tongues. Listen to this. Which are intelligible, known languages that can be interpreted. That's accurate tongues. Uh, Intelligible languages that can be interpreted. And healings, gifts of healing, which are complete healings that can be verified. Now, we can add a few others, such as being transported from one place to another like Philip, or receiving a revelation like John the Revelator. Visions, I should say. And those are extra extraordinary gifts. All of these would be would be considered extraordinary spiritual gifts. Now these were foundational, they were transitional, and they also were temporary. Let's go to Hebrews now, chapter one and verse one. We'll make just a few turns here and there, but not many. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1. The word of God says, God, after he spoke long ago to the, to the Father, or, that's not what it says. Let me get mine. I have a a typo in my, in my notes here. Chapter 1 and verse 1. God, oh, To the fathers, sorry. To the fathers in the prophets, in many portions, and in many ways. Listen to this. These last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he also appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. Now, dear saints, the writer to the Hebrews is speaking about, this is important, speaking about a transition, which is really... A reformation. The writer to the Hebrews is speaking about a transition from the fathers of old, the prophets, to how Christ or God now speaks to us through Christ. This transition or reformation is initiated by Christ. God's people were living in a certain way until Christ appeared in his incarnation. There was a, a certain way prior to the incarnation, prior to the earthly ministry of Christ, that the people of God lived, and they were marked by the law of Moses. They were defined by the law of Moses. Circumcision was the boundary line and marker. The circumcision are the Jews, the offspring of Abraham. Uh, they lived and lived, uh, lived and lived in a particular way because of the law. That was their boundary. There were certain foods they could not eat because of the law. There were certain things that they were forbidden to do because of the law. Certain things they were required to do because of the law. Days they observed. Festivals that they kept. And so on and so on. All because the boundary line of the law. All of these things defined the people of God on earth. The Mosaic Law. The writers of the Hebrews is saying, but there was a transition. There was a manner in which the people of God lived prior to Christ's coming... That by Christ's coming brings fulfillment to those former things. Christ's coming brings a fulfillment to those former things, the law. Christ is inaugurating the kingdom of God. Christ establishes the new kingdom and a new covenant, making the old kingdom, listen to this, and the old covenant fulfilled and therefore obsolete. Now, we've moved from one transition, listen to this, not dispensation, let's make that clear, one transition, one fulfillment of covenant to inaugurating and establishing a new. Christ makes something obsolete, the old covenant that had been placed there by God for years. Now if Christ is coming and making something pass away and fulfilled, there must be some kind of clear authority that Christ has to do such a thing. No one can just come and say, it's done, it's over. There must be some kind of authority attached to this claim that the old has gone and the new has come. Or the old is fulfilled and gone and the new has come. Why should These old covenant people follow this new covenant. And what gives the person who's establishing the new covenant the right to establish a new covenant? Such a drastic transition. Listen to these words. Transition requires, here's here's a big one, validation. Such a drastic transition requires validation. Who gives you the authority to do such thing? God. Prove it. Here's the answer. That Christ gives signs and wonders or extraordinary spiritual gifts. They function to affect or bring about this period of transition, reformation of the old kingdom, old covenant to the new kingdom, new covenant inaugurated by Christ. I hope that we're following together. You will remember that John the Baptist sent this question to the Lord Jesus Christ when he was captured and put in prison. You remember the question? There's only one, maybe only one, maybe two questions that that John the Baptist asked the Lord. But here's a big one in Matthew chapter 11. Let's go to it. John is essentially asking, "Who gives you the evidence, or, or, or who gives you the right?" Uh, let's go to John or Matthew chapter 11. In verse number three, John the Baptist asked the Lord Jesus or sends a question and said to him, are you the expected one? Or shall we look for someone else? Listen to the answer that the Lord Jesus Christ gives in verse four. Jesus answered and said to them, those who brought the question, go and report to John what you hear and see. What do you hear? The gospel preached. And what do you see as an evidence that this is the gospel? The blind receive sight. It's in bold there. It's in bold there as a fulfillment of prophecy. And the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. When John asked the Lord Jesus to validate his authority or validate his uh, identity, who are you? Christ points to what he has preached and what he has done in signs and wonders as the evidence of who he is, as the evidence of this transition or fulfillment of prophecy. What did Christ use as his evidence? Signs and wonders. They would And the gospel, they would serve as validation for his authority. In the same way, spiritual gifts validated not just Christ, but validated the apostles. Christ is validated by his message. His message is validated by his signs and wonders. He sends out his apostles. They bring a message and their message is verified as being from God with signs and wonders. Now, consider John the Baptist, Christ, and the apostles. In John 10, we are told that John did no sign, did no miracles. This is one of the reasons why the Jews debated on whether or not he was from heaven. Is his message from God? He hasn't done anything. He performs no sign, no miracle. But this is what made Christ so evidently from God, because he performed all kinds of signs and all kinds of miracles. He says, "Open open blind eyes, bringing the dead to life. Casting out demons. Doing what no one else has ever done. The signs that Christ did authenticated him in a way that they did not authenticate John the Baptist. Even though his message was powerful. It was respected, but he did no sign. These miraculous things confirmed the identity of Christ as being from God. Now, there is continuity, a continuation. See that? We are cessationists here but from Christ to the apostles, there is a continuation of the gospel preached and the signs, wonders authenticating that message. The apostles continued to do what Christ did. They continued to heal. Uh, they had, by work of the Spirit, extraordinary spiritual gifts performed as the message went forth, as the message went forth. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 12. Just write it down. I'm not going to turn there. The signs, Paul says, of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs, wonders and miracles. Paul refers to these signs of a true apostle. What will validate? What will prove and confirm the identity of an apostle of Christ? It is when uh, those ones continue to do the signs and works that Christ himself did in his earthly ministry. There's a con- there was a continuation of what Christ had done in the apostles. You remember Moses. Moses was commanded to go to the Israelites, to go to Pharaoh, ask him to set God's people free. And what does Moses ask? Why would they listen to me? How am I going to, to prove that, that I am from you, that you are sending me? And what does God do? You remember the Prince of Egypt? Uh, he says, put your hand in your, your shirt, if you will, your tunic. And God gives him signs. Use these signs to validate that you are from me. God gave him signs to perform. These would confirm that he was from God. John the Baptist proved or performed no sign, but he was from God. Christ performs signs and an even greater message to John the Baptist and he does so with his own authority. The apostles continue this. They speak with the authority of Christ and performing the signs that Christ performed. Now, we've established that. Spiritual gifts validate the, the church even to the Jews and to the Gentiles. In Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 3, you can write that down, it says, After it was spoken through the Lord, first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also testifying with them both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his will. That was Hebrews 2.3. Christ is making the old covenant obsolete. The boundaries of circumcision, the purity laws, the sacrificial system, that that, uh, enclosement that they were in was being brought down it was being made obsolete christ was initiating something that was simpler clearer final but also more open as was prophesied in the scriptures not making something completely new but fulfilling that which has been said so the spiritual gifts are going to identify the church and validate the church to the jews so that they can know this is true. It's from God. Follow Christ and to the Gentiles, so that they can know salvation is not only for the Jews any longer. It's for everyone. Come to Christ. It's for the nations. The gifts validate the church as being of Christ and of the apostles, so that the Jews would join the church and so the Gentiles can see they're invited as well. I hope that you're hearing that. It's tearing down these walls and saying, Jews, it's not just for you, it's for everyone. Come to Christ. In Hebrews 2, God is testifying to the testimony and the veracity of the message. Uh, What did the signs, wonders, and gifts, what did they do? What was their purpose and function? They were to bear witness. Uh, They were to attest, to publicly declare, this is true. Church was established by the apostles and those who are sent out and are authorized by Christ to do so. Christ is the cornerstone who sends them out. So in this period of transition, Christ through his apostles, here's the establishing foundation, establishes his church. These gifts are therefore foundational. It it was transitional, yes, but also foundational. They establish a foundation and verify and validate the church. We are told the function is to attest and to, to bear witness. Now, we've said all of these things validate the apostles. But I would like us to consider that they also validate the church itself. This is important. It wasn't just the apostles who were displaying these signs and wonders and gifts. It was people in the church. During the early part of the church. Not just the apostles to the Jews and Gentiles because Christ, when he ascended to heaven, poured out his spirit on the church. It wasn't just the apostles who was performing these signs and wonders. The spiritual gifts, indeed. The extraordinary spiritual gifts were poured out on all the church In different measures according to God's will. We see in the church, not just the apostles. Gifts of healing, tongues, and prophecy in the church. This was the fulfillment of Joel chapter 2. I will pour out my spirit. Your young men will dream dreams. Your old men will see visions. Peter mentions this in Acts chapter 2. He says, this is the fulfillment of this prophecy on the church. Uh, The people were looking around and saying, what is this? In Christ or... Peter interprets this moment and says, this is that which God has spoken. The Lord declared it. The apostles heard it. Extraordinary spiritual gifts bear witness to it. This is the church of Jesus Christ transitioning from the kingdom of Israel, the old covenant, to the kingdom of Christ and the new covenant. And the message is simply this. Here it is, Israel. Here's what you've been waiting for. Join it to the Gentiles. Enter it. What is interesting is that tongues, for example, not only, listen to this for those of you who who have issues with tongues, not they not only validate the church by saying in intelligible known languages, this Christ is for the nations. What do the people say at Pentecost when they hear the the, the message that speaking of the glories of God in my language? They're speaking in my tongue, they said at Pentecost. Not only is this a sign to the Gentiles, this is for all nations. But it's a reversal of a few things. A reversal and then a judgment. It's a reversal of Babel. You remember at Babel. When the languages were separated because God caused confusion. Languages went in different, different directions. No one understood one another. Now all of a sudden, that curse that came upon sinful men has been reversed. They can now understand one another. They can hear the gospel preached to one another. But the scriptures are also telling us that it was a judgment against the Israelites. A judgment against the Jews. In a discernible language. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 14. The prophets will say there will come a time when God will speak to his people in languages they don't understand because they are the languages of foreigners and they still won't believe. They still won't listen. They still won't recognize that it is God who is speaking. Rather than nations going away from the Lord and Jews being brought near, the Jews are going away from the Lord and God is bringing the nations near. This is a judgment on Israel. They received, as was their birthright, the message first. And they rejected their inheritance. The tongues are a testimony against Israel. When someone says, I speak in tongues, are are you speaking the gospel? Is it a known language? Do you realize that it is intended to be a judgment against Israel when you do speak a language? If you do which I doubt. Behold, God has brought the message to the world and they still won't believe it or join it. First Corinthians chapter 14 speaks about, Paul says tongues were a sign. Not for believers, saints. For unbelievers. Tongues are a sign. Not for you. For them. They were a sign to unbelieving Jews that God has grafted in the nations. The Old Covenant is obsolete. Tongues are a sign to unbelieving Gentiles. The gospel is for the nations. Come to Christ. See how Christ has called you to himself in your language. Tongues speaking is associated with Pentecost. And we'll talk about this in a moment. When the nations of the world hear the gospel in their own tongue... In the nations receiving the gospel. Uh, we see tongue speaking. And it's important that, that we recognize these are transitional events. Pentecost is a transition. And what some called second and third Pentecost. When the Gentiles receive the Holy Spirit. Is another transition. Cornelius and his household and others. They are saved. To say the Gentiles have equal standing with the Jews in the church. That we are all one in Christ. Tongues validate this. The church is the body of Christ. Now, irrespective of language, irrespective of descent, of ceremonial works, of the law, we are the church. Tongues judge Israel. They invite Gentiles and they validate the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Which means every copy of the Bible that we have in different languages is a judgment against unbelieving Israel. How many copies and, and continuing to be formed in languages that are, that are being collected. How many languages of the Bibles do we have translated for the nations? This is for the world and the Jews still won't believe. It's no longer Aramaic. It's no longer Hebrew. It's in all languages that we can discern. There's no longer a boundary that confines. to circumcision it's for all the nations these signs were foundational when the foundation was being laid of christ the cornerstone and the apostles the signs and the miracles verify their identity they're transitional now it's necessary and such a drastic change from the children of abraham and the ceremonial laws to the gospel of the nations which is simpler is performed and verified, again, by signs, wonders, but then given to the church. And once this has been established and publicly verified by signs and wonders, shown, once it's been proven, there's no more need for any more validity. It's been proven. It's been established. It's been verified. Is there any more need for more verification? For someone to say, I believe the gifts continue. Why do they need to? It's already been established. Christ and his word and his church have already been established. Why does someone need to say, but I still believe in speaking in tongues. Why do you need them? But I still believe in the gifts of healing. Why do you need them? Does Christ heal? Yes. According to his will. Christ, the apostles, and the church have shown who they are and where they're from. There's no more need for no more evidence. The church passed down the tradition. Prophecy was very important during a time when most of what we have today was not even written down and provided for everyone. There wasn't much for the church to look at and read and to consider. Prophets were important for the Spirit to speak to the church around the world in a way that was true during that time. To truly transmit God's word to his people. But it was transitional. Because the apostles traveled more and more. Wrote more and more. Letters were copied and given to the other churches. Paul's commands, Peter's commands, John and James' commands were being spread through the church. The teachings were being collected, distributed. And so then less and less there was a need for the gift of prophecy. Or spontaneous independent prophecy to teach the church because the apostles were teaching the church through their word. A a tradition or a deposit of truth was being formed and collected by the apostles and the church and preserved. We see this in places like 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2 where Paul says what you have heard from me listen to what he says in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men Who will be able to teach others also. What you've heard, give this to other men so that they can be faithful with it, keep it, and teach it onward and onward. How does Paul set up the church to perpetuate itself through the generations? Here's just the positive truth that you've heard from the apostles. Take it, receive it, and without adding to it or taking away from it, give it to faithful men who will do the same and teach it. There's a deposit of truth that they, that the church has received from Christ and His apostles, that has been handed down from bishop to bishop, elder to elder, pastor to pastor, teacher to teacher. It's been handed down to faithful men throughout all of these generations, and you're hearing it. I pray preserved as the way Paul or someone else would have taught it all of those years ago. As Paul ends his life, we don't see him saying, look for prophets to add to this. No, find faithful men who will guard this and teach it. Uh, you, you recognize in Second Timothy, it's Paul's supposed last letter. And in this last letter, he's not saying, find more prophets. Instead, he's saying, find faithful men who will hold this word and preach it. This is what led to the collecting of the New Testament. The faithful sayings and teachings collected, compiled, copied, preserved, and handed down because the apostles had been verified, authenticated by signs and wonders. These extraordinary spiritual gifts, they've ceased. As we see the prophetic office in some sense, we'll talk about that next week, drifting from view. And then Paul setting up the system where faithful men give to other faithful men a deposit of doctrine. So also we see the same thing in the record of the New Testament with other gifts like tongues and healings, which also seem to diminish and disappear in the New Testament record. Go to the early church. First century. Uh, You won't see any of the early church fathers mentioning anything about tongues. It's past. Meaning, uh, and let me talk about these other things. Early on, the shadow of Peter or garment worn by Paul was sufficient to heal Yet later on, Paul says, "I left uh, tra, I can't say tro, or something like that, in Miletus." Uh, Tromiphius was a man who was sick, who was with Paul. And Paul says, "I had to go. He was sick. I couldn't take him with me. I couldn't wait for him to get better. And we might say, "Well what it man of Paul? Heal him. You've got the gift." Paul didn't have some kind of on-demand gift of his own authority we see this transition of spiritual gifts as time progresses this is an argument from history but it's also an argument from experience we don't see extraordinary spiritual gifts today we don't see people speaking in tongues of foreign nations judging unbelievers in intelligible languages in a way that can be interpreted that they have not studied or learned we don't see that anymore in Acts 21 we see agabus it's called a prophet He comes from Judea, Caesarea, and says, thus says the Holy Spirit. We don't see that anymore. If we look through history in the church, we don't see it anymore. Now, people have claimed to speak for God. Have they claimed to perform miracles? Yes. But their miracles have not been validated. You saw the man on that gospel video where he had the two feet and said, look, look. And it was just a, it was a trick of the mind, a trick of the eye. Uh, We've seen all of those people from, I forget the false teacher's name, Uh, Benny Hinn, who has all of these people line up, but those who are in wheelchairs, those who have visible illnesses, those who have illnesses that you obviously can see, they put them in the back. They don't bring them to the front. They bring the ones to the front that you can't see so that they can say, look, I'm healed. The blind don't see. Dead are not raised. The crippled are not healed of their crippled state. They have proven to be false. They have proven to be frauds. They are proven to be liars. And for many of them, they've also proven to be out of their minds. We know how to test prophecy, don't we? Put them to the test. The gifts are supposed to be public. Things that cannot be contradicted, that are clearly from God. Anyone claiming to exercise this kind of power should be completely willing to be examined, scrutinized, for the sake of verification. Because that is what those gifts are supposed to do. They're supposed to verify. The so-called prophets of today don't speak that which is consistent with, a, with the deposit of truth. They're not being faithful and passing on, holding on to that which has been passed on to them. They don't speak which is con- that which is consistent with God's word. They don't have godly character. They take the money and they stay in the richest, uh, greatest places in all of the world. Abu Dhabi, the, the presidential suites. The message doesn't build up. It only takes away. They're Mormons. They're prosperity clowns. They are false prophets and they give nothing to the church. They only take away from her. When people claim to speak in tongues, are they re- real tongues? Can they be interpreted? No. Where are the healings? Brothers and sisters, it's easy to get evidence today. You cannot rob a store today. There are cameras everywhere. My brother and I were pulling up on um, Fairfax and uh, the 58, which is getting into the country of the country. And he saw, hey, there's a camera right there, right on the exit of Fairfax. There's cameras everywhere. This is why we don't believe in Bigfoot anymore. If, we, if, if he was real, we'd find him. That's why we don't believe in the UFOs anymore or Loch Ness Monster anymore. We've got cameras. If somebody wanted to find them, we could we could find them. But it's so hard to get evidence from the so-called prophetic healers and the tongue speakers and the ones who work miracles. Why is it so hard? We have more ability to get evidence today than we've ever had. But we still don't see it. Why? Because it doesn't exist. The cream always rises to the top. And it doesn't exist. These signs were intended to establish a foundation, and it was temporary. Once confirmed and validated, it was not necessary for those extraordinary spiritual gifts to continue. They don't need to continue. They said to Christ, uh, who had performed all kinds of miracles, "Show us a sign that you are from God." And Christ says, "No, I'm not showing you anymore." Of all the things that they had seen, and Christ says, "I got one more for you though. Just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish, so the son of man will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. I will die and I will be raised. That'll be your, your last, that'll be your last sign. And it will be a sign in judgment against you for not believing. The apostles delivered this message. Christ did exactly what he said he would do. And here's a sign to prove it. The message was sufficiently verified. There is no more need for verification. Now the Spirit of God has not stopped working in the church. The Spirit of God is not absent in the church. Christ who ascended continues to pour out His Spirit on the church. Listen to this. In the ordinary offices. And by the ordinary means of grace. But this extraordinary spiritual gifts, the signs and wonders that bore testimony, they've ceased because validation is complete. They serve their purpose. They were foundational. Transitional and temporary. They were commanded, Paul is commanding the church of Thessalonica, if someone comes with these things, test them. Retain that which is good, refrain from that which is evil. If we apply the same test today, all prophets disappear. What's left? I'll tell you what's left. The deposit of truth. What the apostles in Christ have left for the church is, tr- is still remaining. That which has been entrusted to faithful men has been passed on. So we hold on to it with all of our hearts. Let's go to our second point. In speaking about the work of the Spirit, let's talk about now false and true works of the Spirit, and then we will close. As I said before, the cessation of gifts does not mean the Spirit is not at work in the church today. And to the contrary, one of the central promises of the New Testament, the New Covenant, is that Christ, His Spirit, will dwell with us. He will help us and lead us in truth and holiness. So therefore we are to retain that which is good, abstain from every kind of evil, so that we can know how to discern which is, that which is a genuine work of the Spirit, and that which is a false work of the Spirit. How do we know the Spirit of God is working in our hearts? Let us consider some some points Here's false works of the Spirit, and they'll be brief. This is a false work of the Spirit. Meaning, this is not evidence that the Spirit of God is at work. When you feel peace about a matter of wisdom, that is not the Holy Spirit. When you feel peace <laughs> about a matter of wisdom... That is not the Holy Spirit. Let me explain. It's easy for us to say, we're cessationists. We never falsely speak for God. We attribute never the, the, the false works of the Spirit. We're objective, not subjective. We're reformed. Dear ones, if we're honest, even we who considered ourselves consider ourselves to be orthodox often speak for God when God has not spoken. When we say things like this, the Lord is leading me. I feel the Lord is leading me to do such and such a thing. Or, I feel this is God's will for my life. When we attach those kinds of tags or claims to things that we desire or feel is a good decision, brothers and sisters, we take God's name in vain. And we put ourselves into the same camp as maybe a Jesse Duplantis. When we feel like the Spirit is leading us to things like, I feel like the Spirit is leading me to get this job. I feel like God is leading me to this school. I feel like it's the Lord leading me to marry or not marry this person. To buy this house or not buy this house. To go on this vacation to this particular place. I feel like the Lord is leading me. Or it's God's will. Dear saints of God, on what grounds do we have to say such things? Now, we can say, it doesn't hurt anything. It does hurt something. You're using God's name. It's exactly what the false preachers do when they say God said. What are we saying? We should be more reverent of how we use God's name. More careful. Has God actually spoken to you? Are we to attribute every feeling that we have as being from God? Are we to attribute every desire that we have as being from God? Know this. What is revealed, God's word, is for us and our children. But the secret things, God's will, God's providence, they belong to God. And we should be slow to interpret what we think is God's will or God's leading. If the Lord is leading, if we believe that we know the secret will of God, what makes us, again, any any different from Jesse Duplantis, who has private conversations with the Lord? Brothers and sisters, just because we feel good about a decision does not mean the Lord is leading us. When we feel peace about matters of wisdom, we don't have to say God's leading us. Because He isn't. We're just making wise choices and that's okay. See, when we say we feel or we think, those are subjective. They don't have any authority behind them because what if it turns out it was a bad decision? Well, was the Lord still leading you then? Or did you just happen to make a bad decision? And it's okay to say, I messed up. I made a bad decision. It's not on the Lord, it's on me. Now, if it's a matter of law revealed in God's word, where he says, do this and don't do that, then that is a leading of the spirit. Because God's spirit has inspired his word and he's given it to his people. We therefore follow and obey it. It's a matter of truth over error. The Spirit is leading you. And we have the right to say the Spirit is leading me because the Spirit leads in all truth. But wisdom is a neutral realm. A realm of multiple legitimate possibilities. I could do this or I could do that. And there's no sin either way. But if the Lord is leading you, there is a sin if you don't do it. Would you be in sin if you decided to work at Taco Bell instead of McDonald's? I feel the Lord is leading me to Taco Bell. You wouldn't be in sin. But you attributed your decision to God's leading. If you attributed to God's leading, then you would be in sin because it's a matter of obedience and disobedience if you don't, right? But if it's a matter of wisdom, whatever you choose is up to you. And pray the Lord would be with you as you make these different decisions. We must be careful not to tag the Lord is leading me to decisions, listen to this, in order to legitimize them. It's amazing how the Lord uh, so often leads us to what we want to do. We don't need to add the tag, the Lord is leading me, in decisions that we make for ourselves. It's not the Lord, it's you. And listen to this, and that's okay. I believe this is a wise decision. And if it's the Lord's will, it will be blessed. How many breakups have been labeled, the Lord is leading me out of this relationship? I just don't think it's the the, right. I don't think the Lord you're the one the Lord has for me. Just say, I don't like you. That's okay. If a believer now is with an unbeliever, and the believer says, I think the Lord is leading me out of this relationship because I should not be unequally yoked with you. The Spirit is leading you. That's a matter of revealed will. God has said, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Good on you. The Lord is leading you god is leading you, you have no choice but you should have an authoritative uh, platform on which to say yes the lord is leading me not just i feel or i think you must do it because god has shown you the path and the one who goes away from it is in sin how many have left the church with this tag the lord is leading us i feel like the lord is just leading us how many have have said we prayed and we believe the lord is leading us away from here Now, if you're in a bad church, the Lord is leading you. If you're in a good church, the devil is leading you. I can remember when we were teaching through the doctrines of grace. Let me calm down. And there were a number of people who would send me text messages saying, we prayed and we believe the Lord is leading us in a different direction. And those same people were being so-called, supposedly led by God to a word of faith, charismatic church. Brothers and sisters, They were not being led by God. God will not lead you away from the truth. He will lead you to the truth. If you're being led away from the truth, that's not God. That's the devil. You're being deceived. You're being bewitched. If anyone brings to you another gospel, let him be anathema. Again, it becomes very serious. Even blasphemous, when people speak for God, when God has not spoken. He says this in Jeremiah, they say that, that I have said, I have not said. They went and ran, but I did not send them. It seems innocent. And it's, it seems innocent because we have a, a low view of God. And we so often take his name in vain, so flippantly. Some of us still haven't removed from our language, oh my God. The name of God is to be used for worship worship or clarify, making his truth known. Not some random phrase. It's the name of God. Does the Lord open doors? Yes, we are to pray for wisdom. Uh, we are to pray for our ways to be made straight. But it doesn't change the fact that we make those decisions. We must also be careful not to interpret providence. This is what God is doing. This is what God is not doing. We don't know that. Only God knows. Here's another not working of the Spirit. Here's another one. The Spirit is not at work when we pass judgment on matters of wisdom and fail to pass judgment on matters of law. God's Word. Again, this realm of neutrality. I could do A or I could do B, and there's no sin involved in whatever option I choose. But when someone says, no, you must do A, or you must do B, and if you don't, then you're in sin, that's a matter of wisdom, not a matter of law. When someone says you must, you're now appealing to God's authority at that point. Paul warns in Romans, for those who judge against one who eats and one who doesn't eat, or one who observes a day and one who does not observe observe a day, don't pass judgment on matters of wisdom. This is not a matter of right and wrong, God's law, And we're all susceptible to it, aren't we? So many speak for God and prohibit things that God has not prohibited. Or command things that God has not commanded. Put it to the test. Examine it. Retain that which is good. Abstain from the evil. When we pass uh, judgment on matters of wisdom, it's not the spirit. It's us. It's the flesh. It's our traditions. It's the things that we're holding on to. It's what we've been raised with. Uh, Some people come to the church, come from charismatic churches and go, there's no altar call. Where's the altar call? Where's the scripture? Show me the scripture. No laying on of hands? No anointing oil? Show me the scripture. The Lord is telling me, you should not take that job. You took the job. I can't believe you took that job. The Lord told me, it's what, watch what happens now. It's a matter of wisdom. Take it. See what happens. You should not vote that way. Vote however you want this should uh this is the way you should parent this is the way you should spend your money this is how long your hair should be this should be the color of your car and there's wisdom in some of these choices but not a law you do whatever you want to do in in as far as it does not conflict with what God has required for us in his word God's word gives us wisdom yeah but God's word also gives us specific and clear demands. We must not major on the minor things. We must also be careful not to make, uh, not, not to make. Uh, we must also be careful not to make law. Oh, what God has not made law. We said that already. But we must also avoid uh, antinomianism. So avoid legalism and avoid antinomianism, right? That is saying that there is no law. And that everything is acceptable. This is God's word on the matter. And there is no debate when it comes to God's word. And we need to be clear about that. God defines, here's some things. God defines what love is for his creatures, made in his image. We don't get to define that. God does. God tells us that abortion, murder is wrong. God defines that. God tells us that homosexuality is a sinful abomination. It is wrong. God's word defines that. God's word tells us that Christ is the only way of salvation. and God says that. God says there is only one way to the Father, not many, and it's only through Christ. God says that. There, there is no gray line. It is yes and no here. A line drawn on the sand in these matters, and God draws them, and we must abide by them. Here's another not working of the Spirit. When you devalue the ordinary... This is a a big one. Lord, help me not to go crazy on this one. This, When you devalue the ordinary in search of the extraordinary, that is not a work of the Spirit. I'm going to say that again. When you devalue the ordinary in search of the extraordinary, that is not a work of the Spirit. We are, brothers and sisters, more familiar with this than we realize. Uh, The culture has so influenced the church... In such a way that the church, when it gathers to worship in these so-called churches, it resembles more like the MTV Music Awards than a true gathering of the saints for the worship of the one true God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And dear ones, I'm not just talking about music. Uh, we can think that it's just about the show of music. It's, it's more than that. It's, it's the entire ethos of that so-called false church. It's the practices and the values of those false churches. They've exchanged the worship of God for the worship of creativity and ideas. Now, there are not elders and deacons. There's a creative team, a board. And their job is to come up with new ideas to draw people into their church. It's more important for them, the pastor, to be motivational and charismatic then equipped to teach sound doctrine with a character above reproach. It's more important to them that their pastor wear Jordans and cut off shirts and that he be in good shape than it is for a pastor, even if he is 70 years old, with glasses, who can barely see but yet preaches faithfully God's word. Or to the other extreme, 25 years old, doing the exact same thing. When there is a devaluing of the ordinary, the, Lord, the word, prayer, the Lord's Supper, and baptism, in search for the extraordinary gifts that have ceased, it's not the work of the Spirit. People come, it, it, But all they did, was, they had um, some hymns up there, they read law and the gospel, they preached the word, they prayed, they took the Lord's Supper. You seem to be devaluing those things that the Lord has provided for your growth and for your Christ-likeness. I can remember, in the church that I came from, Lord, help me, planned revivals... We're going to plan a revival. Plan healing nights. We're going to plan when the Lord is going to heal. Plan experiences that we're simply trying to find the extraordinary. So that the pastor wouldn't have to sit down for maybe 10 to 12 hours throughout the week and prepare a sermon. Instead, I'll come up. He would come up. Build up an emotion, get the music going, come up here, let's start laying on of hands. And let's do that for an hour and a half. Which could be the time that we sing, have a liturgy, preach the word, take the Lord's supper and pray. Do you see how there's a devaluing of those things that God has promised to bless and in overvaluing the things that God has said have ceased. Everyone's trying to recreate Pentecost. It had its purpose. It's transitioned into something that God has now established for the church to bless her. Before us are the promises of God. We don't need anything else. And when I say the ordinary, don't think Powerless. They are the things that God regularly promises to bless his church with. When we say ordinary, we think of normal, normally that he regularly promises to use to bless his church. Every week you have been promised a blessing from God through the things that he regularly gives to you for your Christ likeness. So you don't have to come saying, I wonder what's going to happen today. I, I, I wonder what pastors got on the menu today. We'll see what happens. We'll see what the spirit does. You know what the spirit's going to do. He's already promised to do it. There's no guessing. There's no, uh, let's, uh, uh, he didn't have it today. He wasn't on today. The Lord is on every Lord's day. His means are provided every Lord's day. When you come to them by faith. This is what the Lord has promised to bless the preaching of his word. Isn't there more? What more do you need? This, this is devaluing the ordinary for something that's foundational, transitional, and temporary. For that thing that the Lord has provided for you every week. They are sufficient for us. They are sufficient for us. They, they are more than enough to move us to joy and thanksgiving. The the idea that these are insufficient, that is not a work of the Spirit. Not a work of the Spirit. Last, in things that are not a work of the Spirit, when the supposed gifts do not include love, it's not a work of the Spirit. If there's no love, (laughs) there is no Spirit. Uh, Speaking with a dear couple this past week, uh, and the place that they came from, the church is known for the pastor uh, being very dramatic, being very defensive, being someone who is not able to be corrected, uh, and the church has these pockets of drama all over the place, these pockets of fire all over the place. That is a reflection of leadership. They're like that because the leaders like that. That is not a work of the Spirit. If you come into a place and say, "Gosh, they were so loving there," It's a work of the Spirit. If you come to a place and everybody's like, who's this? Who do they think they are? What are they going to do here? That's not a work of the Spirit. Where there is love, that is a work of the Spirit. Where there is not love, that is not a work of the Spirit. It's very simple. If you don't have love for the brethren, you don't have the Spirit. You don't love God. You're a clanging gong, Paul says. Useless noise. noise. The genuine influence of the spirit will be accompanied by love. Christ gave his spirit to the church when he ascended, and he will not take him, the spirit, away from her, the church. The spirit is the guarantee of his presence until he returns. The extraordinary spiritual gifts have ceased. The ordinary gifts, the regular gifts, continue. Praise be to God. We're continuationists. We're continuationists. We believe the spirit is still at work we don't believe in the extraordinary spiritual gifts those have ceased because they serve their purpose but we are continuationists. the spirit is at work when your loved ones have come to christ by faith in christ that is a work of the spirit oh, i'm getting ahead of myself uh, the, the genuine works of the spirit here they are when you are drawn to believe the promises of god i.e. the gospel when you are drawn to believe the promises of god that is a work of the spirit in God's promise, He has given us many things, salvation being chief among them. We are saved in Christ. And if your heart does not respond to the gospel, that's not a work of the Spirit. But if your heart is responding to the gospel, it is a work of the Spirit. When you see the elements of the Lord's Supper, this is my body, this is my blood for the remission of sins. And your heart is moved because your sins are forgiven. That is a work of the Spirit. When the preacher declares the gospel and says Christ has died and risen for our forgiveness and our salvation. And your hearts rejoice at the promise of the gospel. That is the work of the Spirit. When you hear the promises of God and your heart is drawn out to believe and to delight and to rest in them. That is an influence of the Holy Spirit accompanying God's word. The Spirit is at work in your heart. He is moving you. Spirit is sanctifying you as well when you hear God's word, which we'll get to in a moment, and you want to believe. That is a work of the Spirit. And it's not objective or subjective, it's objective. It's not I feel this or I I think that. It is God's word and it is moving you to see His word, to believe it and to obey it, which is our second sub point. When you are drawn to obey God's word, that is the work and influence of the Spirit. I want to keep His commands. I want to walk in holiness. I want to be faithful and do that which is right. Work of the Spirit. I want to honor God and live for Him. Work of the Spirit. I want to live in a manner worthy of my calling. Work of the Spirit. It's not natural to fall in man, is it? To want to obey the, the Spirit of God. But because of His work in our lives, having regenerated us, having now sanctified us, in the process of being sanctified, He is pushing us toward the commands of Christ, toward the new covenant, toward the Spirit to walk in His ways and to reject the works of the flesh, the lust of the flesh. That is a work of the Spirit. When God's promises are presented and we believe them and we rest to them. When the law is given and we say, it is good. It is my delight. It's not burdensome to me. That's it's that's not you just saying, I'm super awesome because I believe these things. That's God's spirit working in you. Look at me, I'm awesome. I believe these things. No, that's God's spirit working in you. He is causing you to believe these things. He's changing your heart, conforming you to Christ's likeness. Work of the spirit. We should come to church praying and expecting prayer to be answered. When God's word comes forth, God, help me to believe your word and to obey your word. That's a work of the Spirit. Lord, speak to me through your word this morning. And I pray that he is this morning. Encourage me with your promises. Instruct me in your commands. Help me to come by faith to your means. I know you will bless me. That's a work of the Spirit. Here's another one. Two more in closing. When you fear sin or feel remorse for sin, godly remorse, that is a work of the Spirit. When you're afraid to commit sin or when you feel remorse, godly remorse, that is repenting for sin, that is a work of the Spirit. Because the natural man delights in his sin, but the man who is filled with the Spirit takes no delight in the sin of the flesh. The natural man, again, delights in the darkness, but the man of God walks in the light. The polluted fear the consequences, the earthly consequences. But the man of God fears God. That which dishonors God, that which brings shame and dishonor to God. That that man says, I have not been holy as God is holy. I have not walked in his ways. Dear Holy Spirit, change my heart Forgive me of my sin. Sanctify me. Make me hate this sin and love you more. Dear ones, that's a work of the Spirit. That's a genuine work of the Spirit. Do you need a tongue? Do you need a hand laid on you? Or do you need to turn from sin and walk in obedience to God? I've seen all the Paula Whites of the world. All the Creflo Dollars of the world. I've been in the same room with them. In the same office with them. They have no holy character. They have no remorse for the... the sham they're pulling over the church. They're still doing it. They will be judged for it. But the person filled with the Spirit says, I cannot do this. This is not of God. And finally... When you have love for the body of Christ and desire to serve, that is a work of the spirit. Jesus said, you shall know them by this. They will love one another when you have love for one another. Not just in word, but in deed, when you love and you want to help and you want to serve. Uh, that doesn't always mean preaching. That means, sister, how can I pray for you? Brother, well, how can I help you in your life? Uh, there's a few brothers who wake up early in the morning and just pray together. That's love for the saints. Sending encouraging text messages to one another, having people over for dinner, fellowshipping with them, uh, being hospitable to them. That is love for the saints. Uh, the readers will oftentimes go over some of your houses afterwards and, and they'll spend all day over there. That's love for the saints. When we do the work of loving and serving one another, that is the Spirit's influence. Loving people that you wouldn't normally love in this world. But by God's work and Spirit, He brings us together. That's a work of the Spirit. Look at this diverse group this morning. God has brought all of you together from different parts of the city, state, and maybe even country and world. That's unnatural. It's supernatural. It's a work of the Spirit. Notice that Paul commands the church to test it. There's an objective standard by which we know we can retain the good and abstain from the evil. And we need an objective standard, not a subjective one. We need God's word to instruct us. We are drawn here to believe what God has revealed. And when we feel remorse for departing, and we feel love for the saints who are united around us, that is the Spirit's influence. Read John 1. Let that be your homework assignment this afternoon. Read John 1. That is how John identifies true believers. Doctrinal, moral, and social test. Do they believe the apostolic doctrine? Doctrinal test. Do they keep the commands of God? Moral test. Do they love the children of God? The social test. This is how you identify the true work of the Spirit among God's people. While we wait for the return of Christ... We know how to discern what true prophecy is. We know how to test it. We know that the transition has transitioned. And now we are being blessed by the regular, ordinary means of grace that God has given for our Christ-likeness. Next week we'll talk about preaching and how that assists in our growth. Let's pray.